If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. One of the things I think is hard sometimes for us to not notice and pay attention to is how many things that we see people get into controversy over are really minuscule small things. In the grand scheme of things, all of us have gotten into contentious relationships with others throughout life. And at times, when we do the analysis, if we were to be honest with ourselves, what seems to be a very serious matter between us and other people really wasn't so serious where it began. This morning we're going to be looking at in Acts chapter 16 that Paul unknowingly causes an uproar. Paul doesn't even realize that his simple annoyance over a situation, how he responded, would get, have the backlash that it does. In Acts chapter 16, we're going to be looking at specifically three things. Number one, the distracted prayer in verses 16 through 18. Number two, the misguided imprisonment, verses 19 through 24. And number three, the awakened redemption, verses 25 through 34. Let's start with number one, the distracted prayer. Verses 16 through 18. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. One of the things that you see here in this text is that she, this, this lady that we are introduced to in this text, is bothered by something that's going on with Paul in the prayer meeting that he has. Paul comes back to this gathered prayer service, if you will, and continues to build these believers up. Remember, Lydia had just asked him to stay with her after she became a follower of Jesus Christ, and Paul sticks around. He and Silas, more than likely Timothy and, and, and Luke as well, are there ministering to that community. But what ends up happening is there's an interruption here in the regular, regularly scheduled programming. Have you ever had that happen in life? An interruption, if you will, to the regularly scheduled programming that you have in your life. Every one of us has, a, in, a, in a certain sense, those of us that don't like schedules still have a schedule, right? We can't really live without it. You still have to get up a certain time to make it for a certain time to whatever event that you need to go to, whether it's a, your job, whether it's church, whether it's in a special event that you're going to be attending. All of us have to, in a sense, follow a schedule. But what happens when that schedule doesn't turn out the way we had anticipated? Remember, all of us, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, maybe I'm the only parent that goes through these things, but when you have something you're anticipating and you've been planning for a long time, and then all of a sudden, last minute, you have to change the plans and you can no longer do what you wanted. There's a disappointment that comes with that, doesn't it? There's a, there's, a, there's a tendency to go, all that work for nothing, right? Well, Paul here, he's going, going about ministering. And what's brought up here in this text is the slave girl who's possessed by a demonic spirit. A spirit of divination, if you will. Some background to why divination is mentioned here. The writer connects this actually to Greek mythology because they believe that this girl 
was a person through which Apollo spoke through by means of a python or serpent who guarded the oracle of Apollo. The slave girl was possessed by the spirit of divination, which is ultimately to say that this was a demonic spirit. An important point to pause and consider, all the forms of fortune-telling, sorcery, and occult practices are in fact satanic, church. They are. Things today that you and I need to be aware of and stay away from, that many times we don't pay attention to, but are, in effect, demonic in nature. Astrology, fortune-telling, and horoscopes. I can't tell you the amount of times Christians find that this is fine to entertain. Don't mess around with things that look innocent, but you don't really know the backdrop to them. The Ouija board should be a no-brainer to most of us, especially the older generation. You all knew people that messed around with that. Good luck charms and jewelry meant to keep bad omens away are all an attempt to disguise and confuse darkness with light. Hypnotism is a very dangerous form of the occult practiced today, which many are affected by more frequently than they'd like to admit. In fact, this is one of the reasons why many who listen to music are brought under the influence of an artist and they don't even realize that they are. Many consider all music to be neutral, and just the words are what matter. What they don't realize is that medium does matter, and delivering the message itself does matter. In order to not sound legalistic, many Christians in modern Christianity allow all types of music into their home, and they do not realize that it is influencing them away from Scripture and prayer more than they're willing to admit to. Which is why we can spend hours unplugged from the rest of the world, if you will, in our own world when it comes to music. And spend very little of that growing spiritually, if any at all. Scriptures point to Satan being an anointed cherub. And more than likely leading in worship. If you and I assume that he can't fool us into that, then we are fooling ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. Just a few quotes to better understand how music itself can be used by many of us, even though we may be too naive to realize this. Jimi Hendrix, famous guitar player. In fact, I find his skill set to be incredible. But here's what he says. I could explain everything better through music. You hypnotize people, and when you get people at their weakest point, you can preach into their subconscious what we want to say. Aristotle, believe it or not, ancient philosopher, thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, says this, music directly represents the passions of the soul. If one listens to the wrong kind of music, he will become the wrong kind of person. Just to pause for a moment here. As a pastor, I believe it's important not to tell people to change their style of music before telling them to open the Word of God and have God's Word affect them. One of the most dangerous things I think many churches do is that they tell people, here's the standard you should follow based on my standard, and they bypass this entirely. It's one of the most dangerous ways to get you and I to be deceived. 
Why? Because some of us will have a tendency to like rock music. Some of us will have a tendency to like country. Some of us like pop. Um, all of those things are really a personal preference, if you will, sometimes. They're not in any way inspired by the Word of God. One of the reasons why I do not harp on people changing their music standard just for the sake of doing so is because it's, it produces a false fruit of repentance. If your music tastes change, content-wise, maybe even in some cases the genre, but you have not changed much throughout the years as a saint in these, area, in this, these areas, maybe you and I need to examine which has more influence over us, the spirit or the flesh. You see, as you mature in your faith with Christ, certain things are going to change automatically. It comes through the process of sanctification. If you're listening to the same garbage you did before you became a believer, then that's not good evidence of the Spirit working well in your life. And you need to examine that. What's interesting here, back in the text, is that this girl speaks only the truth, actually, about Paul. She actually makes the statement that these are great men of God. They're declaring the way, the truth here. Nothing she says or declares at this point through the spirit of divination comes as an utter blasphemy, if you will. Although the delivery may be different. She may have been screaming some of these things. At times, and this is something important to pay attention to, witchcraft, crucifixes, and candles are used interchangeably to signal acceptance of different faiths. Don't mess around with syncretism, church. Syncretism is the mixing of different religious systems. You can't mix Christianity with the occult and expect it to be pure. And yet a lot of Christians try that. They think they can mix Eastern mysticism with church practice and what Scripture says, and it's impossible to do so. In fact, that's one of the reasons why one of the major things that we can pay attention to in the Old Testament before God gives the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel is when Moses comes down that mountain... The children of Israel has, had practiced syncretism. They had mixed the beliefs of Egypt with their own and raised a golden calf and proclaimed that this is what brought them out of Egypt as if they didn't know it was Jehovah God. What's going on here in this text is this, this slave girl, if you will, for quite some time is following them. And Paul just has enough at one point. I love that the text tells us something that all of us are very familiar with. Paul is annoyed. I don't think any of us have ever gotten annoyed, right? You've never been annoyed, right? None of us have been annoyed with any circumstance or any other, anybody else. One of, the, one of the most frequent things that I find, at least in interpersonal relationships when it comes to annoyance, if you will, is when somebody wants to talk about something and the other's like, all right, stop. I've had enough. Well, in this circumstance right here, this slave girl continually follows them, keeps proclaiming these things, and Paul just has enough. He's had enough. Paul, greatly annoyed, cast the spirit out. Which begs the question, why did he just command the Spirit to come out at that point? 
I don't know when you read the Bible if you ask these questions yourself. Like, why didn't you just do that right up front? Like, why go through a few days of this? It's possible he didn't want the attention she was bringing and mixing what she had proclaimed and what really possessed her with his preaching and his proclamation of Christ. A misalignment, if you will, pertaining his ministry. We see that Paul does care for this slave girl, even though he's annoyed because he calls for the Spirit to leave. Why he didn't do it as soon as he realized she had a spirit of divination is not clearly spelled out for us. Although it's possible she drew crowds to Paul in her declaration only became a hindrance as time went on. You ever have this happen to you? Maybe I'm the only one that has this happen to me, but when you have something good in your life, let's say you're spending time with people and you enjoy the company of others and, and you have them over frequently, after about the third or fourth time, it's not as pleasant sometimes, right? Like, you're not as excited to see the same people that many times. Have you ever had that happen? Maybe, maybe you're a person that never gets sick of people around you. You love the same people around you every single day. You never go somewhere else. Um, you'd prefer to be sitting there at home just having a cup of coffee every single day with the same person. Maybe you're, maybe you're one of those examples. Uh, I'm not. Um, and I find one of the things that's interesting that we see here in this text is that this is a frequent occurrence to the point of, we see the scripture says that Paul just gets annoyed. And Paul's response is a proper one in going to the root of the problem. And that's the spirit of divination, as this girl possess. You see, we have a response here that shows that the gospel doesn't need sensationalism to sell. Paul's not looking for the fanfare. He's not looking for the, the wonderful experience. But out of sheer annoyance, he just goes ahead and tells the spirit to depart. The gospel doesn't need sensationalism that many churches are selling today. It doesn't need these incredible things to impress others. The gospel is all the work of the Holy Spirit who brings people to faith. This casting out of the demon or spirit, if you will, leads unfortunately to Paul and Silas going to jail. Number two, the misguided imprisonment. Verses 19 through 24. And when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So what we have here in response to this freedom now that this slave girl possesses because she's no longer controlled by the demon, she has freedom. We have a response of a financial hit towards her masters. And that doesn't make them in any way respond well to that. In fact, that financial hit causes them to lose quite a profit. 
As we've mentioned before in the Sermon on Persecution, and then we mentioned this weeks back, this was not exclusively a gospel situation here in this text. This is Paul preaching the gospel, and this lady comes along and proclaims through the, the spirit of divination, truth, yes, the manifestation of a false spirit as well. And Paul, out of annoyance, casting that demon out. The fortune-telling slave girl loses business for her masters, and the response here is to put them in prison. Their bottom line was affected by Paul's expulsion of the demonic spirit in this girl. This is a, this is a point I really want to park on for a moment. Because the response is an interesting one, and I think sometimes when we read the text of Scripture, we don't pay attention to these little nuggets that Scripture reveals to us. They did not, if you will, sue for damages of lost income. They rather went after what these men taught and their effect on society at large. Sound familiar? Sound like something that might be happening in culture today? They were okay with the slave girl telling everyone that Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel in the way and that they were sent from God. They were fine with that as long as they were making money. As soon as the money went away, they weren't so fine with that message. As soon as the demon was expelled, they could no longer make a profit, and that turned Paul and Silas against them. They specifically went after Paul and Silas as Jews teaching something that Romans would forbid and worshiping someone other than the emperor himself. They claimed that because Paul was a Jew, he should be tried for insubordination to the Roman law. They argued what Paul was teaching was a threat to society. Man, people have not changed much. If you do not pay attention to what's going on in the world, you'll realize that very quickly people haven't changed that much. And we always assume that it's much worse and people are so different now than they were back then. They weren't. People are very much the same, which is why the phrase, the good old days, has never made sense to me. The good old days. All the good old days had its share of sexual promiscuity as well. Its philosophy that was opposed to God as well. As a side note, what's interesting is because the Jewish people were firm in their faith, they technically were exempt from the worship of the emperor as long as they paid their taxes. I don't know if you knew this. After all, money's all that matters, right? At least that's what seems to be the case here in this text to these men. When you hurt my wallet, then I'm going to come after you. When you hurt my financial statement for the next quarter, I'm coming after you. I don't care as long as you don't hurt me financially. But as soon as you affect the bottom line when it comes to my finances, now you're my enemy. Behind the scenes, there's growing, there was growing a persecution of the Jews under Emperor Claudius, which made Paul and Silas an easy target for these men. In fact, when the government will back you up with what you want to get others in trouble for, why not go to them right, right away? I mean, if the government's going to already back up your position in going after other people, why not go directly to them and have them execute, if you will? 
So many Christians today just want to raise their families, earn a living, buy a home, while raising their children according to the principles of Scripture. And that's all fine and good. What they don't realize is the worldview that they hold to is no longer acceptable in many cases. It's not accepted in society. As time goes on, it's going to get more and more difficult for you to express what you believe a family should be. What's incredible is that so many people, particularly Christians in progressive Christianity, think the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves sinful man, is the only thing you should never compromise on. When it comes to sins, you can bypass all of the dialogue that Scripture has on that. At the end of the day, God is love, and that's all we need to proclaim. What they don't understand is how all these other areas in culture are fighting directly against the gospel. They don't understand that gay marriage is an affront to the unity between Christ and His church, the bride. They don't understand that transgenderism is an assault on the image of God. That He created man in His own image. Male and female, He created them. They don't realize that abortion is an insult to the gift of life God has given every one of us. Many Christians will argue you don't need to speak out about anything. Just stick to preaching about Jesus and how he saves, and that's it. Just love people to him. If Jesus saves from sin, what sin is he saving us from then? Oh yes, of course, the commonly named sins, everybody that could always can relate to the sin of anxiety, envy, we can all agree on those sins. But let's not touch these other ones that are controversial in our culture now. It's inevitable, the areas where we follow Scripture, we're going to hurt some people and some places that we do business. We're going to hurt our relationships with others at times. Where others may be offended by what we say or don't say about sex and marriage and God's design. And what we do and don't say when it comes to Jesus being exclusively the only way. Or even simply in our refusal to enable poor behavior from irresponsible friends or family members. Because we want to follow God's word. There are principles in scripture, church, we need to apply whether or not we like them. Whether or not our heartstrings are not pulled. There are people I love dearly. And they know my position on certain things, and they know that I love them with all my heart, but I can't agree with their sin. Businesses are going to be affected if we don't support these organizations which promote an unbiblical stance. And let me tell you, church, this is important, and I think a lot of us miss this point when it comes to who we do business with. There's a difference between a business promoting sin and allowing sin. There is a difference, and you need to be able to tell the difference between those things. When we follow scriptures, our finances may be affected. Where we may not get the promotion for refusing to cut corners others well. Or simply not following the laws which counter God's in scripture. 
What Paul does here is out of annoyance, he casts out a demon and ruins someone's business strategy, if you will. He didn't exclusively sit down and share the gospel message with this slave girl at first. Although she probably heard him speaking to the others during this time. Paul still preached the gospel. He still prayed, but this wasn't one of those times. He shook some things up financially for these owners. That's why they were angry with him. They were fine with him proclaiming Jesus with prayer or prayer meetings. As soon as their finance, finances were affected, that's when they went after him. As long as we're able to make a profit, we don't really care what you're doing, Paul. When what we do impacts those around us in what they perceive to be a bigoted view, taking away from their profit, their bottom line, influencing their family and friends in ways that they don't like, that is when we will experience the blowback. It could be a financial hit. It could be a severance from others. Or even imprisonment or death in the most extreme circumstances. Brothers and sisters, that is what's going on around the world outside of America today. And you need to be aware of the fact that you have a lot more freedom than they do right now. And that while you have a lot of freedom, that you need to prepare. And that you need to be prepared right now. Don't wait. Vody Bakum says, suffering is common for all. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided. All you have to do is compromise. Unfortunately, that's a lot of the church in America today. No one will go after them. They don't preach anything controversial from the Bible, ever. God is love, and that's it. It's the only thing they proclaim. Ten steps to a better marriage without the Word of God telling you how to do that. God wants you to be happy. Those are the sermons we're preaching in America today. Paul and Silas here in this text are stripped of their clothes down to their underwear and beaten by the authorities. What we would consider law enforcement today. Pay attention, church. Not every governing authority will always, always follow what God's word considers the standard. With this kind of beating, Paul and Silas were viewed as a threat to society. What is interesting to point out here, and this is something that you may not have noticed because it's not really mentioned clearly here in this text, Paul and Silas were the only ones that were beaten and thrown into prison. And more than likely, Luke is here with them during this time, as well as Timothy. Luke was a Gentile, and Timothy is half Jewish and half Greek. Paul and Silas are thrown into jail only to be given the incredible opportunity to share the gospel once again. That's how it works. Number three, awakened redemption. Verses 25 through 34. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken 
And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Paul and Silas, Silas, the new man for a new trip with Paul, are held in stocks here. I can only imagine being Silas. Sure, I'll go with you, Paul. First experience. Beaten and jailed. At least, I guess they had a good incident first. They had Lydia, but got a little time in a house. So they're, they're held in, in stocks, and they start singing at midnight. Probably, bless the Lord. No, I don't know. I don't know what song they were singing. But we do know that they were, and others were listening. I'm not sure if there was that one random person that goes, stop, you know, in the jail. We don't see that in the text. But we know that others were listening to what they were singing. Church, if there's one thing that's lacking in the church today, and I know I'm not going to do a whole sermon on this, but I'm just going to park for just a second. We need to be a church that sings the praises of our king. Men, you need to lead the home in worship and sing together with your kids. It's something that is lost in the church today. And you're probably saying, well, I don't have the best voice. God doesn't care. God is not looking for falsetto. He is looking for you to give him the honor that he's due. Which is one of the reasons why I always love that text. And in, 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 I believe it's in Psalms. The praise the Lord with a loud, loud noise. Praise Him with the instruments. We ought to praise God with everything we have. And that doesn't just include coming into church and singing only on a Sunday morning. Sing it out in the car. Instead of the pagan Lady Gaga songs, sing some worship with your kids. It's important to realize this, if they're singing songs they had them memorized. How many good songs of the faith do you have memorized? What's incredible here is God sends an earthquake that busts open the doors and breaks the chains of the prisoners. This may seem like a natural occurrence, an earthquake, but the precise timing is supernatural. Supernatural. The jailer must have fallen asleep probably earlier or maybe during their singing. Who knows? Maybe they put him to sleep. I don't know. 
But he awakens with this earthquake to find the doors open and chains off. He assumes everyone's escaped. There's nothing to do than to make sure I finish myself off before they finish me off. Paul yells with a loud voice, Don't hurt yourself! We're all in here. We're having church in the inner cell. That's my added comment, sorry. But why would I say that? Well, here's what's interesting. The jailer runs in with the light and falls down before Paul and Silas. He's trembling. He can't even believe what he's saying. His question to them is not, how are you all doing? His question is, what must I do to be saved? What a gospel witness. People that are supposed to watch you because you're a danger to society all of a sudden want what you have. What makes you different? I despise people like you, but I want what you have. That's what the gospel does. All of a sudden, they want what you have that Jesus saves. Paul and Silas simply respond with what the gospel is in a nutshell. Church, listen, this is something we overcomplicate all the time when we want to share the gospel. Here's the shortest summary of the gospel that you need to memorize. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul doesn't do a long exposition on every point on the Trinity and sanctification and justification. He just goes simply and says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, do those, all, all those other things matter? Of course they do, which is why Paul sticks around and still teaches people. He disciples them. But the starting point is what the Holy Spirit already does in that heart. How do we know the Holy Spirit's already affected this jailer? His first question is, what do I do to be saved? How do you know the Holy Spirit's worked in a person? They want to know what they need to do to be a believer in Jesus Christ. They want to come to saving faith because the Holy Spirit's already worked in that heart. Paul and Silas give a simple explanation of the gospel here. God moves in this situation, and this man goes from guarding them in a filthy jail to protecting them and cleaning their wounds. This man shares this with his family, and they are baptized. They don't wait. The gospel affects them so directly, so immediately. Something very similar to what happened to Lydia occurs here. I don't know if you've noticed this. We had just spoken on Lydia the other week. This jailer brings them over to his house. I did wonder, I, when I was reading this, I was wondering, you're supposed to be in charge of the jail. Like, what are you doing? Those details are not spelled out for us. 
But he brings them over to his house. He gives them food. What's the best way to help others who are in a jail cell? Invite them to your house and give them food. He enjoys their company. He rejoiced that he's been given the gospel. Could you imagine having one of the craziest experiences of your life? There's this earthquake. You think you're, you're literally dead because all the prisoners probably escaped, so you're, you're already dead as it is. And you realize that God had these two men in that jail cell precisely providentially to share the gospel message with you, and it stirs your heart. When the gospel changes someone's heart, they can't help but rejoice. Which is why a poor excuse for the gospel is a miserable disciple of Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, here's my question. Church, where's the difference? Where's the difference? You don't need to be outspoken on every topic. That's not what Scripture tells you to do. But you do need to take a stance on anything Scripture says and be clear of what God's Word does say on it when it comes up. Do more know about your allegiance to a political leader or party than they do your allegiance to Christ? There are many conservatives that don't know Jesus Christ. It doesn't save them. Do you speak out on only the safe topics at the moment? What do I mean by that? Anxiety, addiction. Here's the big phrase that everybody throws around, a lot of Christians included. Mental health. Listen, I, I'm, I'm in no way opposed to the fact that we realize when we are under a lot of stress that we need to make sure that we rest, because Scripture tells us to rest. But when you start misinterpreting what Scripture says on certain things, that's when you get in trouble. A lot of the reasons why people have mental health problems is because of sin in their life. Simply put, they had a split with their family and now they're blaming it on mental health. How about there's a relationship that's been severed that you need to work out biblically and stop blaming it on the fact that you're under stress? Listen, church, the best way to speak out on the issues in the world is not necessarily just to agree or disagree with them, but to live out and promote what God himself loves. When it comes to the home, to love your husband and wife the way you ought to. Complaining about them to your unsaved co-workers is not going to help your gospel witness. Church. The best way to speak out on the issues in the world is to love your children in the way that God wants you to. Not the way the world's telling you to. It may come across unloving to the world that you don't give them a tablet when they're young little children. You're not allowing them to enjoy fun. No, you want to protect them from sin, and that's why you're doing it, parents. And that's perfectly reasonable according to the Word of God. You don't let your children set the rules as culture dictates to do. 
but neither do you go out of the point, out of the way to be frustrating to them to the point of exhaustion, as Scripture warns against. How do you speak out on the issues? You invite people to the church that you attend. You tell them, I love the Word of God. I love my community here in this church. Come join us. Come visit. I say this all the time to parents in the school. The greatest advertisement is you. It's not the cue, as much as we use that. The greatest advertisement for our school has been families that have loved the school so much that it matters to them. And they go out of their way to go talk to others about that. So what's a way that you can speak out on the things that are controversial maybe in culture? Well, one of the ways is to promote the importance of a Christian education. It matters to you that we have a school. It matters to you that you cherish what God's given you. And instead of freaking out and, and worrying about what every, everybody in the world tells you to worry about, you go, my children are in a safe place here in the school. And I cherish that and I value it and I want nothing to happen to that because it matters to me long term. We realize that at times it's going to be difficult. But church, we cannot continue in ministry if we don't understand the value of what we have here. Instead of complaining about the things that are outside your control, promote the things that are in your control. One of the phrases that's very popular, we've heard it in many contexts, put your money where your mouth is. What you want to spend your money on, you're going to promote ultimately. Ask God where you are inconsistent in how you are portraying Him, church. Where's the difference? Well, you ask God where you're inconsistent, what you're, how you're portraying Him to your children, parents. All of us have inconsistencies. All of us do. We have the things that we tell our children that we hold to and believe and practice. And we have the home life. And we need to ask God where we're inconsistent, how we portraying Him. Your entertainment choices do matter. They're the part of sanctification that a lot of us like to think is a separate thing that we don't really need to worry about. Your relationships with others matter. One of the hardest things to practice is to not show partiality. And you demonstrate who God is by not showing partiality. As a side note, if you're going to ask these questions of God, you're probably going to think that you're better than you really are if you're not reading consistently and faithfully and in prayer before God. Most people that you ask to do an introspection or God wants them to do an analysis on their heart will think they're better than they really are if they're not in the Word of God and seeing what God says. It's occasional. It's true. Sometimes people go the other way, but it's very rare. Typically, we like to boost ourselves up to think we're better than we are. Unfortunately, a lot of the church will blame others for why they are the way they are. 
They'll create excuses for themselves and blame others more readily if they're not taking the Word of God seriously. Listen, there's one thing I, I've learned throughout the years of my marriage is that the moment that I say, this isn't that important, I'm just going to go off of what I think is right in my marriage, it goes bad. Anytime there's a disagreement, the Word is what we need to go to for guidance. Not our intuition, as wonderful as it may be. Not our intellect, because some of us are very good logical arguers, right? How many of you have met people like that? Maybe you're one of those. You love to reason your way through something to prove your point. How about simply just saying, forgive me? How about that? How about instead of explaining ourselves 50 times, we just go right to the point, I was wrong. You see, church, we're given the gospel to present to others many times in areas where we may rub them wrong, in the wrong way, not necessarily in the areas that we agree. 